race is on and it looks like heartaches and the winner loses all. Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. The gang is all here and then some today. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you in the Brooklyn Bunker once again. We have the most varied show we've ever done. We're going to bring in Safi Joseph Jr. for an interview. We're going to talk to the president of the Illinois Horseman, Mike Campbell. We're going to wrap up the show by bringing in special correspondent Naomi Tucker to talk to Kevin Blake about marketing horse racing. It should be a really fun show, and it starts off with a sort of a rare appearance. We've got not only our uh, pretty much every week co-host on the show, Sean Tugel of Windstar Farm. Say hello, Sean. Hey, Pete. How are you? Happy uh, New Year's. Hope you you and your family had a wonderful time there, either in Brooklyn or wherever you were traveling the world. So uh, good to hear your voice again. I, I Good to hear you as well, and good to hear our next uh, co-host slash guest, the returning Jonathan Kinchin. JK, what's up? I'm actually in the process right now of naming a group text for a trip to Vegas this weekend. If you've never done that before, it's a lot of fun to name the group text with uh, only emojis. So you can use your imagination. <laughs> I don't even know. I think we, we, we pride ourselves on being family friendly here, JK. And you, the idea of you on a Vegas trip, I assume you can't even give us a, a glimmer as to what you're talking about. No, I just like the wine emoji, the, the slot machine emoji, the money emoji. <laughs> um, you know. Okay, that works. You know, cool. if, if, if I didn't see, you know, you had so much gray hair in your, in your, in, on your head and your beard, I, I would think you're some millennial trying to name some group tax thing for Vegas. I mean, what is this? It's, I'm definitely not a boomer. Like, I'm not a boomer oh, like somebody else. Oh, you know? my goodness. You know, this is the thing that JK has now decided to, to make me completely crazy. I'm not even close to being a boomer, but I will say by the actual definition, I think the cutoff year for millennial it's funny, we end up talking about generational stuff a little bit later in the show with Naomi and Kevin Blake, but the cutoff is 1981. I do think technically, J.K., you are a millennial, gray hair and all. I'll take it. I'll take it, even though it is probably the most uh, universally annoying uh, group of people. I, I, I like to think that I'm on the I'm on the edge, so I'm not too bad. <laughs> well, J.K., and, uh, you know, I, I, this is definitely not a millennial thing, but... Uh, you know, me and Pete, we, we, we got through this first year, and, and, and you were there to, to help us. But it's good to hear you back on the podcast as well. So you must have made a, a 2020 resolution to uh, <laughs> to appear more as a co-host. We'll see how long that lasts, just like many resolutions throughout the year. But, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep track. <laughs> well, you know, look, uh, speaking of resolutions, my, I've already failed mine was to not eat ice cream. Um, every day and I've already violated that but um, here's the thing is you know I wanted to give you guys your your wings you know and let you fly I felt like I felt like I was uh, I was overpowering uh, the show with with so much uh, awesomeness that I felt like I should back up and let you guys shine a little bit and so now that you guys have it shined, and now I decided it's time for me to come, to come back. Oh my god! And, and, and great job on using the term "wings." That was such a a uh, interesting year for you in 2019 with with, with wings. Man, 
I, I miss I miss airplane wings, uh, and I and I surely miss not having to pay for them. But uh, uh, we're in the process of re- resolving the uh, the non rev travel res- uh, issues that we we've had. We've gone deep down the rabbit hole here into into JK's travel, uh, which we'll hopefully get sorted out because you know the rest of the country needs to see you, JK. You can't just be going back and forth between Lexington, Kentucky, and the planet Texas all the time. You mentioned New Year's resolutions. It just I, I love having a podcast because I can complain about silly things that annoy me. The New Year's resolution crowd at the gym is really getting under my skin, folks. I showed up the other day. I'm ready to go for my run. Not joking. I didn't realize it was like a totally mopey time to go like 11 on a Saturday. Each of the 40 treadmills in the gym was taken. And I was tempted to go to the guy at the front desk and say, like, can we at least kick one of these New Year's resolution people out for the guy who shows up here uh, 250 days a year? But I decided not to do it. <laughs> no fall off. Just give him some time. Don't, don't, don't be out of I would have thought, I would have thought, you know, in the in Brooklyn, it would be cutting edge if you could have reserved uh treadmill you know you, you don't even you can just show up and you have one reserved and how dare you touch a treadmill i, I would have thought for sure you guys would have that in it's not a bad business idea sean we may have to we may have to put that together all right we've got a lot going on in the show so enough of our silliness let's get to the guests and we're gonna start off i'll let you say a couple of words jk because i know you've been following this trainer for the last few years no, i think it's i think it's always fun to to, to kind of get the new faces and get to know the new faces and see who's involved. Uh, at one point, Todd Pletcher and Bob Baffert and Chad Brown were, were new, quote-unquote, new trainers. Brad Cox, the most recently, uh, most recently the one that was the new trainer, the, the new guy on the block who was a high-percentage guy that started winning some stakes races. And next thing you know, uh, those guys I just mentioned are, are atop the food chain in this industry. And there's a guy that I think that could be on the way to, to, to getting himself in that conversation. And that's Sappy Joseph. And he came to our opinion, you know, to our uh, observations as horse players from his high percentage as a claiming guy and, and a guy that you want to include in your wagers when, when you see him claiming a horse. Uh, but he's knocking on the door now with some stakes types. And he got his first grade one win this year with Math Wizard. So we're looking forward to uh, talking with Sappy today. I think you must mean fiscal year, JK. But in any case, let's bring him in right now. Trainer Safi Joseph has been going a little bit crazy down at Gulfstream Park, winning all manner of uh, stakes races, and he's somebody we've been wanting to talk to for a long time. So today we made that happen. I want to start off talking about Sound Machine, who got the win in the Glitter Woman last weekend. How did she end up in your barn, Safi? Well, she's owned by um, Bob Edwards and Mike Grantix and the owners of him, and we just made a contact where we got in touch with him and we uh, built a relationship, and he, he said it to us. We're thankful that he did send it to us. And what's been the story since Sound Machine arrived? Is this one that had obvious talent to you from the first time you clapped eyes? Well, she came to us. She's a high-purchase um, filly, so there's always expectations. Early in her works, um, she would work well, but uh, like the last thing would, would, would just not sparkle. Um, as we started taking her back in the works, I think it was a, like two works before, right before we ran her, her debut. We took her back and she was a different horse. And her debut was, it was very impressive. After that, we couldn't get a race at Goldstream and she went to Keeneland and ran disappointed. And we got her back here and she just trained okay and 
again, ran second in the stake, which for most horses you you would be happy, but her being a high purchase high, there's always there's expectations. And then since that stake, she 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 went forward. She she trained much differently, and it seems like she's like she's um, become a different horse. And we were hoping that would carry over to the race, and it, it did. We just we were, uh, we were a little concerned about the distance, but she she handled it well. And we're happy to see her like hopefully turn a new leaf and keep going forward. Safia, Sean Tugel, uh, congratulations with the win on Sound Machine. We, uh, we're pretty, we've been watching her pretty closely too since she broke her debut. Uh, we, we bought our half sister there, uh, uh, after, after her debut. So it was exciting to get that black type update for, uh, you're helping us all out. But, uh, I think some people, uh, you know, they, they saw this year you were, uh, you got your first grade one win with Math, Math Wizard and, and uh, why don't you just expand a little bit upon that? And certainly, uh, about a year ago, you were running for, you claimed him back there. And, and I don't know if you had the expectation that he could be a grade one horse, but there must have been something that, that drew you to him. And and uh, just wondering what, what you saw in that horse. And, and congratulations on getting him all the way to the, to the pinnacle. And I guess this looks like it might be around the corner for you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, the reason we claimed him, Matt, was we, we never expected him to become a grade one. Really. He, I mean, he always dreamed of those things, but realistically, no. And the reason we claimed him is his dam was a good router, and he had never been he had never went um, long. The day we were claiming him, it was it was going to be his first day going a mile, and he had run decent going um, six and six and a half. So we figured, at worst, he's okay going six and six and a half, and then he's, we know he's valued twenty five at least. And if he improves going longer, then we could have a nice starter, maybe a longer source. And the day we claimed him, he, he won well. He won as easy as you could get it. I think we just claimed him at the right time. And um, John Finelli, who I claimed him for originally, sold on at that time. We then sold shares out of him. But John was very influential in probably him achieving the things he did because he picked ambitious ambitious spots. Like the first spot was to go to, we ran him back in the starter. and It was second. And then he wanted to go to Wood Memorial after that. And I think that started it all because it was a very ambitious place in the Wood Memorial. He was like, 50 to 1, 60 to 1, and he showed he was legit when he ran in that race. And then from there, we just kept building, building on him, and he just kept improving. And we're thankful that it all worked out the way it did. Savvy, we're obviously uh, very aware of the math wizards and the sound machines and the chancets. Uh, but, you know, you first got my attention when you, when you were winning at a pretty high clip down in South Florida, especially first off the claim the last five years. I think you're 33%. Uh, the last year, 39% first off the claim with a positive ROI. The positive ROI, obviously, meaning that the horses are running better than the public uh, thinks they're going to run. What, what is it? What is it? Uh, obviously, you don't want to give away all your all your secrets and your edge in the claiming game. But what do you think sets you apart? Uh, what, what kind of things are you looking for in horses, or what things are you changing? Uh, just for some examples uh, with these horses. Um, I don't, I don't think we're changing much. I think a lot of people try to claim and overthink it. You. A lot of people try to claim from low percentage trainers and and always claim with the mentality of improving ours. And I think that's the total opposite for us. We claim just, um, we, we want to claim the horse at the right time. But sometimes it's not about improving a horse, but it's just about claiming the horse at the right time because there's only so much these horses can improve. So you can't improve these horses beyond what they're capable of. But you can also look for trends and know that they're getting better and try to claim them at the right time when they're peaking. So... I think that's one of the main things we do, and like we we're big on claiming from high percentage trainers, and that's like I know a lot of people don't like to claim from high percentage trainers, and 
we claim from we love to claim from high percentage trainers. I think any high percentage trainer you look at out there, they run the horses in the right spots, and that's one of the reasons they're a high percentage. And I think that's probably our best angle I could tell anyone that is that just claim from claim horses at the right time and don't be scared to claim from high percentage trainers. If they're going to win for another trainer, it's more realistic that they're going to probably win for you also. And it's, there's no secret that exact science. Now, if you take that same horse, you're claiming for 10,000 and you try to be a hero and run him for 20 and 30, most of the time he's not going to win for that. But if you claim a horse today for 10,000 and he wins for for any trainer out there, there's a good chance that you do, once you take care of him in two or three weeks, you can't mess that up and he's going to win back for you. Some good insights there, especially that idea about not being afraid to claim off higher percentage outfits. It's logical to me that you know when a horse is coming out of a higher percentage barn that the horse is probably in good shape. And if you can find the right spots, you can have success. And you've certainly shown that. I didn't want to go too far into this interview, Safi, without asking you about Chancet, another exciting runner in your barn. What is your history with Chancet? Well, Chancey came into our barn uh, last year around April or so. Mary Lightner, she was a former trainer, and we had knew we had um, I knew her when she was training. And she called me and said, "Do you have room to take a horse?" And I was like, "Sure." And she she brought him down here. And the first day we ever put him on a tack, he went up on his hind legs so high and walked. And I was like, "Whoa, what did Mary send me?" <laughs> and then he, he went to the track that day and he galloped like a nice horse. And his first breeze was good, and his second breeze was better. And then I, I think after his second breeze, we realized he had talent. We had Song Machine at that time. I thought she was the best um, two-row in the barn, so I decided to work her with Chancet, which kind of realized if Chancet was legit or not. Obviously, I thought that she was probably going to outwork him, but that day, Chancet outworked her, and I was like, whoa, he's a serious horse. And from then, he's all like he's he's always shown that he had um, a lot of talent, but then you still want to see it on the in, in the race to, to confirm it. And same thing. From the first time he ran, he got beat. He probably didn't get the best um, trick as far as trying to win on the day, but he got the best education because he got in behind horses. He took dirt, um, kind of backed up a little bit, and then got switched on and ran on. So education-wise, it was priceless today. On, on a day, it hurt because he got beat. He was a horse that I, I never wanted to get beat for his first five, six starts. That's, that's how much uh, potential we thought he had. And if you look through his record, basically, he's, he's pretty close to being unbeaten. I mean, he's a nose away after the, um, in the second leg of the Science Stakes. And that, going into that race, um, it was known to public. We had a, we had a thickness. And I think that day proved to me when he got, even when he got beat in the second leg by a nose, is that how good he was. Because that's what good horses do. They overcome. They overcome things and and make it um, look easy. With a good horse, it's easy to train a good horse. You can, you can make mistakes and they're going to overcome your mistakes. And With a cheaper horse, is obviously much harder because you have to make sure everything's good for them on the day. They're not going to win if things if things aren't perfect. Yeah, I think that was you hit the nail on the head there. The always probably good to see in a young horse is that that fight and determination. Certainly, a lot of horses can look good winning by open length, but when they have to battle it out down the lane, that's that's I'm sure as a trainer, that's that's what uh, gives you great pride is, is seeing that battle and, and winning that battle. You know, just looking at him, he's, he's certainly by by currency swap, but he's out of a, a pleasantly perfect mare, so. You would think that uh, he would get some some stamina there from the bottom side, and 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 you've won with him going around two turns at Gulfstream. What uh, do you think he's he's actually going to be more more suited to, to stretching out and 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 being a route horse, or, or do you think he's going to be be more of a, a one turn horse, you know, down the road or 
or you know later on in the year if, if you're even looking that far. I think like if you look at Tarwin Chisholm and Nakano, I mean, you always think probably shorter, but if you look at Chansey and you don't know his pedigree, just look at him as a horse, you would say row. And you look at him train, you would say row. And so far, he's, well, he went two turns once. He won um, pretty easily. Gear, probably his most visual impressive performance was that day. He was geared down the last, like, 16th. And then he came back the other day and he and he went a mile off a layoff. And if, if there were stamina issues, he had every reason to, get, to give in because at an A-pole, in my opinion, he was he was a beaten horse. And if there were stamina issues there, he would he would have he would have he would have given in and got beat by two or three lengths, and he fought. So for me, I, I think up to a mile and a half, I'm pretty confident. I mean, obviously, you go a mile and a quarter, you always want to see it done before you believe it. But even a mile and a quarter, I think there's not going to be any problems in doing it. It's all about for me. Any any horse can go any distance. Is how is can they go that same the same distance at the same level? Uh, and I, I feel confident up to a mile and a half with him, but, but he'll he'll be able to handle it even a mile and a quarter. There's no reason he hasn't shown any, any given us any doubt yet, in my opinion. Safi, you're uh, obviously a third generation horseman. I was reading some stuff about you and noticed that you uh, spent a lot of time and you know growing up and going to uh, going to Calder and going to Gulfstream. How, how influential was the the, the handicapping? Uh, horse playing part of your development. You know, most guys that are really good at claiming, uh, they, they can they can handle that part of it. Are really good handicappers. Do you do you bet often? Did you start off as a better? What, what's your kind of history with with horse playing and, and handicapping and betting? Yeah, well, for since since I was young, you always you always handicap the races and bet the races and have fun. So I, I think that that's definitely helped as far as I think in, even in claiming, you know, like if you're handicapping a race. You know what kind of number it's going to take for a horse. Say, so if he's claiming for ten thousand, can he win for sixteen thousand? Vice versa, is he running for sixteen thousand and he really needs to be running for ten thousand? So I think handicapping definitely for claiming it definitely helps you if you're a good handicapper because you know just you just know technically yeah I'm claiming a horse today for ten but you know on his numbers like to put him for sixteen automatically and he's going to win doesn't mean he's, we're improving him it just means. He's gonna. His numbers are good enough to run for sixteen, and someone's running them a bit cheaper than he's um, than he's worth. J.K. mentioned you're being a third generation horseman, Safi. I wanted to talk to you about the importance of family to you and what it was like growing up in the game, and when you knew this was something you wanted to do with your life as well. I think my my whole life basically um, grew up. I was born into horses and Barbados, my dad, he was a trainer on how we keep our horses and our horses are stable at our, um, where we live, at our farm and they van to the track every morning. So I just grew up, grew up, this is, this is my life, my whole life. And I would say from the time I was like, from the time I started training in Barbados, I always had ambitions to try to get further and you want to, obviously your dream is to become one of the top trainers in the world. I mean, it's easier said than done, but the way to get that to do it was to come to America, and that's why we came over in 2011. I was 22 when I came over, and it was to try to to get to the top. I mean, the first years were tough because you were it's hard to attract clientele or sell some money from Barbados. Like you had to just prove it, and I think that it's been a gradual it's been a gradual stepping stone each year. Like the last year, it's taken off, but the first six six or seven years, it was just gradual. Basically, very few owners our own horses and just you're doing well, but you're not getting any attention. And how can you tell someone, Hey, 
give me a horse before you give it to like a Chad Brown or a Todd Fletcher or a Bill Ma. It's, it's hard to justify that because at the end of the day, um, their, their resume is much more impressive than, than mine. And I can't blame owners for thinking. The only way I could get an owner into my barn is if they could come and see what's going on. And, that, and that's how we picked up a lot of our owners. We're just word of mouth. It started with one owner having a horse and they recommend us to the next owner and the next owner recommends us. And it's, and, and that's how we picked up a lot of our owners just by basically recommendation because it's, it's hard for a trainer. You can't, you can't really put a, like a scouting report there. Like a, and if you're a good NFL player or a good basketball player, you could do a video and you could send it to, to some scouts and they could say, Hey, that kid has talent or he's, he's good. But as a trainer, you, you can't do it. You have to prove it on the, on the track basically. And the only way you can prove it is by getting opportunities. So that, that was the hardest part where, like, I would say up to, like, two years ago, there was there was doubt, as in, not doubt in the abilities that we're capable, but there was doubt as in, is it going to happen? Are we going to get it? And then everything just fallen into place, I would say, in the last year and a half. And then last year was Math Wizard, obviously, put us more recognition. And just we're blessed to, for all the owners we have right now and the, and the great horses that we have. Getting that big horse certainly helps getting the national attention, that's for sure. I wanted to ask you about a picture on your website, Safi. It's a photo of your Aunt Claudette receiving a trophy from Queen Elizabeth. Is that a picture you heard a few stories about growing up? Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories about that. And it's funny enough, because I was just did an um, interview today with Christina Bosanakis, and she asked the same thing. And that was my aunt. That was a race that my granddad um, they had they won the horse and it was actually in Guyana and the queen was there to uh, present the trophy for the winning because it was a big race and basically my family's been in racing their whole life and racing is in our blood and once it's in your blood it never leaves it may, it may, you may take a little walk away from it for a little bit but it's always there because you love it I mean to to, to do this you have to love it like and the pride it brings when you win a race and it's second to none it's the best feeling in the world I think. That's why we, that's why everyone races because it gives you a feeling that and a high that nothing nothing comes close to. I've heard it described as you feel like you're you're ten feet tall walking around there when things are going well at the racetrack. Just a couple more for you, and we'll let you get on with your day. I wanted to ask a little bit more about your father and how involved he still is in the operation. Well, my dad, he's 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 my. Um, I would say our system is probably based a lot on on his training and on his ideas. He's still very much involved. He's he's when he's whenever he's in the uh, he's over here. He's at the barn every day helping out. And he don't even I would say when he even when he's not in the country, we're we're talking on the phone daily and discussing horses. Or I'm sending if I'm not happy with how a horse is moving or traveling, I'm sending him for his ideas. And he's probably my toughest toughest critique. He's just like sometimes the horses aren't running good, and he he'll he'll get on my back. More than the owners, and I mean, I'll be like, the owner's not complaining. Why are you complaining? So he keeps, he definitely keeps me, um, keeps me motivated. He never, he never lets off. And I mean, like, and and I like it. I think, I think it's good to have because he's he's been an experience in this game is priceless, and that's something you can't, you can't teach experience. You just have to learn as you go on. And so I, I always have him. He's he's sixty nine. I always have him. His, his his experience, I think, makes us basically. It just helps us a lot with each horse, and I can't thank him enough. And we argue every day, but it's always about to put a better man <laughs> of the horse. That's great, Safi. My uh, my girlfriend always wants to go to places with a beach for vacation, 
And the only way we're going to go is if that beach is also located near a racetrack. I think I could probably trick her with a Barbados trip. Do you have any advice <laughs> on how I could pull this off? Where should I go in Barbados? What time of the year should I do it? And, and am I, is she going to be disappointed with the beaches in, in Barbados? No, you're not going to be disappointed. Barbados, if I could tell you one thing, if you want good food and you want good beaches, it's a place to be. The, the water is blue and it's, I mean, most of the beaches are pretty calm. If you want more rugged, there's the East Coast. But as far as the West Coast goes, the, the beaches are beautiful. Um, close to a track, the, the, the racetrack in Barbados is probably like literally surrounded by the water. Like two minutes, like three minutes away by car, probably like seven minutes walking. So it's um, it's a place, it's definitely a vacation place. Beautiful place as far as uh, pretty safe. And I mean, I always recommend people to go not because I'm from there, but. I, I like it. Like for me, I, I love living in Florida now because it has everything. But as a, as a vacation spot, Barbados is definitely somewhere I recommend. When is the Gold Cup again, JK? You're going to have to make some travel plans. The Gold Cup, uh, the um, first Saturday in March. Um, we're probably going to have a runner. We're, we're going to take over our horses here for it again, and hopefully, we can win it. I might just, I might just hop on the horse plane. I've heard stories of the horse plane. <laughs> I would, be, I would be terrified flying over the ocean and uh in a horse in a horse plane but uh whatever as long as the beaches are beautiful yeah the beaches will be, it'll be worth the trip safi joseph thank you so much for your time today sharing uh, those memories and giving us those updates we hope to be talking to you again in the near future godspeed to you and your family and your horses thank you very much for having me guys nice talking And now I'd like to welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree podcast the president of the Illinois Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association, Mike Campbell. Mike, how are you doing today? Gentlemen, I'm fine. And you? Things are good. We do have Sean Tugel here as well. I know, Sean, you've been following the situation in Illinois very closely. We've talked about it a little bit on air on the show and a lot off air. I may let you, Sean, begin with the questioning of Mike. The story broke in the TDN the other day about Arlington possibly being dark in 2020, a frightening prospect to people like us who like it. But Sean, I'm going to let you take the take the reins here for a minute. First off, I just want to want to thank Mike come, for coming on. Uh, it's great to have someone who uh, who shares a passion as we do and, and is willing to come on and, and speak about it. Uh, many times, you know, not everybody wants to do that, but, but thank you. And, and I, I'm sure the Illinois horsemen are, are quite appreciative of, of the work that you're putting in to, to help write the ship up there. Um, certainly, I think this is one of the stories. I'm happy that the TDN is covering it and, and it's getting some airtime, um, you know, because we, we all know that, that California obviously is having its issues. But I think this, this is one issue that is, is just as detrimental to the industry, if, if not, uh, uh, you know, a little bit more, is, is the loss of Arlington and, and, and the great racing history of Chicago. It's, you know, for the Midwest, it's, it's the premier city for, for arts, theater, sports, you name it. And, and horse racing needs to be a, an integral part of that. Um, so, and, and, and it's just another situation. And, and I think, Michael, I think for a lot of people, obviously, uh, you want to start and, you know, I, Maybe people got surprised by by the predicament that Illinois race is in currently, and and what is the process? Uh, you know, certainly, kind of from the outside looking in, it looks like uh, the synopsis is uh, is uh, um, that Churchill just kind of turned a, a, a blind eye on you and, and kind of left you for dead out there. 
that's a pretty good categor- categorization. Let, let, me, let me summarize it this way. And for over 20 years, we've lobbied together Arlington, Hawthorne, Fairmont Park, and the, the two horsemen's groups, three with the standard breads, to bring a casino to the racetracks, commonly referred to as a racino. This would entitle them to 1,200 positions, both slots and table games. And, of course, it, the intent of that law when passed was to uh, rebuild the horse racing industry, which, because of various reasons, mostly the advent of, of riverboat gambling that turned into land-based casinos, that it was depriving us of the first structure that we felt uh, should be a part of Chicago racing uh, in the sixth largest state in the country and the second largest market area, arguably. So, so it was much to our our displeasure and chagrin that Churchill announced that when the deadline came for issuance or application of such license, that they said that they would uh, they were not going to make application. And so that time has come and gone, and here we are with Hawthorne and Fairmont doing a build-out as we speak, and Arlington is rejecting that build-out. Mike, why would you hypothesize that Churchill has acted in the way that they have regarding the Racino issue? In my opinion, and shared by many others, uh, it was because Churchill bought 61% share of an existing land-based casino that is the most successful land-based casino in Illinois and in the immediate Chicago vicinity. And uh, it's because Arlington is 12 miles away from that location and potentially the competitive nature of the two casinos being put side by side. I think that is what probably created this situation. What are the next steps in this process? Okay, so the next step towards uh, fulfilling the obligation for Arlington to fill an obligation to put in a, a gaming license is seemingly come and gone. Uh, now, they have a different view of this. Their view may be that they can come back and reapply, but that's certainly not what state law uh, suggests. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know. They, right now, we have a contract problem with them uh, that they, wanna, they want to uh, obligate to run for uh, around 130000 a day, which makes us not competitive with surrounding states. We don't see where they get the horses from nor the quality of racing, nor the field sizes, because when people, they look up in that right-hand corner, these owners and trainers now, they look for purse structure. And that's what fuels quality and field size, of course. So so we're in a discussion with them on how to make purses better. We're insisting on 200000 a day in dailies. They're insisting on hosting the Million, the Beverly D, and the Secretariat. No change to the, to the racing model, no change to the status quo, and, and, and essentially an unsuccessful, unsustainable racing model. It's really troublesome to kind of, you know, I, I think uh, there's, there's two or three absolute major uh, racetrack operators in America, and certainly Churchill would be one of them. And, uh, you know, you can, you can look at, at the, the expansion and, and the beauty of, of Churchill Downs, what they've done there. Then you can also look at, at what's happened to some other uh, racetracks that have that logo. Um, Certainly, I don't think anyone would want to lose Arlington, and, and it's very troublesome that when you have a racetrack that's in such a nice area in that proximity, um, you know, everyone's screaming for, for safety, and you have a, 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 an excellent synthetic racetrack there that uh, one of the major players in our, in our business would, 
would would have this happen. Reading the article there the, the other day, you said there was a group of current owners who are who are making a push to buy the racetrack. Is, is that something that you see is, could happen? And with that being said, is is there a limited number of actual licenses that that can be given out by the state? There is a new ownership group, but do they have the ability to to gain a license, or or is that something that Churchill themselves own and not the actual racetrack? The, the privilege of a racing license in Illinois and a gaming license in Illinois are belong to two separate agencies. And the Illinois Racing Commission on the racing side and the Illinois Gaming Commission on the gaming side. So uh, uh, they would have to answer that question, you know, in a better way than I could. But I have been approached by uh, two groups of possible buyers. They have the means. Uh, they're well-known. And, uh, and uh, they... Of course, they want to operate as a track and as a racino, uh, as intended by the law. Very interesting. What do you think is the the realistic opportunity to get such a deal done? Have Churchill shown any willingness to punt when it comes to Arlington? Or do those entrenched gaming interests in the state make them less likely to want to play ball? I think Churchill is it would have to answer that question. They have certainly not confided in me. Uh, <laughs> the track, the track is uh, the, the two groups that have that have shown an interest and, and explained that interest to myself uh, are talking in the 150 to 200 million dollar range. And so, I don't know how Churchill justifies closing that facility, Arlington Park, and it's only worth it. It's worth about 80 million dollars for real estate. Now, if you have to remediate that grandstand and the grounds, we've got another $25 million. I'm surprised their, their stockholders are not enraged. Uh, they are, they've got a, a, they've got legitimate offers on the table. And, and, uh, and I don't know where those discussions are at now, but it seems to me like, you know, somebody ought, ought to start asking some questions. If the new owners were to be able to successfully complete this deal in order to get the Racino process to where we thought it was already, your read is that that would be a total starting over? Or do you feel like that is something that could happen in the near term, potentially? There's a spring session. Uh, it, it, the gaming bill will have uh, further amendments to it, I believe. Uh, right now, it would seem pretty clear to me that the, the law uh, would suggest that, that that time to make a, make application for a gaming license has come and gone. Uh, it could be as simple as uh, having success, successor language instant in, embedded in the amendments. But that's a, that's a question for the Gaming Commission and the legislature. That would That's my take on it, however. Let's return to the racing side of things. I would love to hear your vision, your optimistic vision for the future of racing in Illinois. My optimistic viewpoint of racing in Illinois is that we still have a very affluent area in a, in a great surrounding, uh, a very fluent population. Uh, we have a, a, a core base of very uh, affluent owners, trainers, breeders still. Uh, we have a, a world-class facility, world-class grass course for sure. Uh, and 
And with all that enthusiasm, I think it could be rebuilt, but it, it, it clearly takes support from supplemental income from gaming. And so Churchill's role in this for the state, for the industry, for the horsemen, it was all about their participation by utilizing their gaming license. And, and so I would ask of them, and I have asked of them, that if you're not willing to make a commitment to the industry in, in Illinois, not in Kentucky, at Turfway and, and all, you know, at Churchill Downs, then, but in Illinois, if you have any consideration for us whatsoever, if you think that your gaming interest can be improved by, by participating in racing and, and casino uh, at Arlington Park, then either use it or give it up. Divest yourself. You're, there's, there, the, the people that have talked to me about an, uh, an investment relative to owning Arlington Park have certainly said the money is not the issue. And so if the money is not the issue on the sales side, then what in the world, why would anyone want to hold on to a property that's worth $80 million at best for real estate and ruin an entire industry? And, and I know that they're interested in other areas of gaming in Illinois because we are the sixth largest population and Cook County is well known for its affluency and certainly uh, the large uh, population base. But it, it seems to me that it goes further than that. If they really want to invest in other areas of gaming in Illinois through Twin Spires and through sports betting and through potentially another license that they're seeking in Waukegan for a casino, I don't know how they portray themselves as, as good faith uh, uh, players in Illinois when, in fact, they're turning their back on an entire industry that, by the way, without our support in that gaming bill relative to a racino at uh, Arlington Park and the other two tracks, it couldn't possibly have passed. All I would have had to do or all my, my lobbyists under the direction of my board of directors would have had to say is, we are we are not in favor of this bill it, when it was Arlington Park does not participate. It would have been finished. It would never have passed on the Racino side. So I don't know what I don't know what they're thinking, but I would encourage them to get with the program and think about more people than just corporate profit. Give I would I would I would suggest to them that they prefer, that they choose people over corporate profit in this situation. Certainly, uh, I think anybody listening will, will hear that passion that you have for, for Illinois racing. And and, uh, and certainly, um, you know, between yourself and the other board members, and, and we always root, root for the horsemen in this scenario. Um, you know, there's been some great examples in the TDN today. There was there was the article about uh, how racing in Texas has come back. We've had Debbie Easter from the Virginia Thoroughbred uh, Breeders come on and, and talk about how, you know, the, the legislature in Virginia and and the horsemen have been able to to rebuild that that great racing jurisdiction and and you know hopefully this can be a, another great case study down the road of, of people uh, as you said putting aside possibly corporate uh, considerations and, and really looking at it from a big picture standpoint and and what uh, racing not only just from the gaming standpoint but also from you know the jobs it brings and and the entertainment it can bring to the families in the area. And, uh, and we, we do wish you luck and, and hope, hopefully you can uh, come out on the right side of it. Well, you know, it, it's even broader than that. I, I live in Illinois. I live close to Arlington Park. The hit that the state and the taxpayers and the breeders 
you know, they're trying to plan, uh, they're trying to plan, uh, uh, their breeding operations. They're, this has all caused us to rethink our positions about whether or not we want to participate in racing in Illinois. I myself this year, I've been out of town. I've raced 53% of my horses out of the south side of the state of Illinois. I, I just never envisioned it this way. There, there is no reason for this. It, it, it seems to, to me to, it doesn't pass the smell test. I think that, you know, that we have a legislative body. We have two agencies that, that control this process. We have leadership in government that controls this process. They all need to take a hard look and, and wonder what happened here exactly and get to the bottom of it. And like I said, if Churchill can't do it, then allow somebody else to. I wanted to ask you specifically about Arlington Million Day, certainly the day that the most horse players around the country are paying attention to Arlington Park. But I've always wondered, as an Illinois horseman, if you might look at Arlington Million Day as something other than an unmitigated good. Look, we appreciate Chad Brown's participation and others like him through the years. Uh, we recognize the fact that marquee races, marquee days are good. Unfortunately, what's happened in Arlington Park is they see it as, as a retail uh, uh, decision, not necessarily a racing, a good choice for a racing model. We lose $2 million on that day of racing. There's no way going out of leaving that day that we can make up for that hit to the purse account. And so, well, we typically go into that day about 2 to $3 million uh, to the good, underpaid. We come out of that overpaid in every, in every circumstance, and we just can't make it up. It is, it is typical of a, the family budget. You can't, they can't have the, the, they can't have the Cadillac anymore. They've got to downsize and make adjustments. I've recommended to them that they, that for a period of one year, they set those races to the side, which they can do, and that we, that we run none or, or one, maybe the million or something like that. We're still going to take a hit, but it would be, something that was more palatable to the purse account from the standpoint of a overpayment. And so it, it is just, it's just not affordable anymore. It's that simple to host the million this year and have all three races is what really is going to get us to $130,000 a day in overnight. Uh, there are a number of ways to get us to $200,000 a day in overnight. Uh, they they can, uh, they can downsize the stake schedule, the open stake schedule, the restricted stake schedule. We believe in it must happen. They can write a check. Uh, we offered them in order to get their money back, which is about $4 million to make us whole at 200,000 a day. We offered to them that they could get their money back by putting in gaming operations. And, and the first 4 million would go to them. We've offered to, uh, we have a provision called recapture where according to state law, that they are allowed to go into our purse account and they take about 60,000 a day, 4.2 million a year. And that number uh, could be deferred or forgiven. There's all kinds of ways. The opportunity is there to not have to write a check for the whole 4 million, but do other options and, and probably write a check too. And, and that would get us to 200,000 a day to support our overnights to support our field size and certainly support our quality of racing. 
It makes sense. You raise a lot of great issues. This is a story we're going to be continuing to follow, Mike. We'd love to check in with you again about it when there's more news on the topic. We really appreciate your passion. And next time we'll get a little bit more into your horseman history. We love those kind of stories as well. But there was just too much news going on this time. We kept it to the current events. But in any case, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, guys. We'll talk to you anytime you'd like. All right. With that in the books. We're going to let Sean go. And now to close out this edition of the show, we bring in our special correspondent, Naomi Tucker. Naomi, how are you doing today? Hi, Pete. I'm doing well. How are you? Things are good. Things are good. A lot of fun folks to chat with on this show. We've got some fun stuff planned for later in the week as well. But I just wanted to chat with you ahead of this interview you recorded a little bit earlier in the week with Kevin Blake. Kevin is an old friend of mine. Been listening to him since he arrived on the scene, whatever it was, seven or eight years ago. And I actually knew him for quite a bit longer than that from different internet forums about uh, jump racing in the UK and Ireland. He's one of those people, even just when you'd read his post on a forum, you could tell he had talent and his success is no surprise. But it's interesting that it was your idea to talk to him, not mine. And I wanted to give the listeners who might not be so familiar with his work some idea of who he is and what his standing in the business is before we cut to this interview with him. You're exactly right. When you say talking about his posts on forums and online. I think he very much has an opinion, but a very well-based opinion, using facts and using his knowledge, using his contacts. And I came across one of his pieces, one of his columns that he writes for several different bookmakers, and I thought that he really hit the nail on the head with one of his topics, namely addressing the demographics that are being targeted for people going racing that he's saying are we looking at the right people trying to get them to love racing come racing enjoy the experience and amongst all the noise so to speak there's a lot of things that are currently affecting our industry i think that this was something that maybe hasn't been addressed often enough i know it has been addressed addressed but i thought it was a good angle that he took and hence i love speaking to him about it very cool. It is a fun chat that I think listeners are going to get. And it is an issue that's not just relevant to racing around the world. Certainly, we talk about it all the time here. What's the best way to market our game? At the end of the day, my two cents on it, and you guys get into this a little bit in your chat, it's almost like choosing between which one's better, beer and tacos, when you're talking about should we market to the young audience, should we market to the existing audience. The fact is they're both great, and I think you should do both. You really got me with your beer and taco comparison there. <laughs> Where are you going with this? I agree. I think we should be addressing both, but in different ways. And that's something, indeed, we talked about a little bit as well, that he was making the case for existing lovers of the sport, passionate fans that are going racing quite frequently, that they should be rewarded for their effort, that there should be schemes that incentivize them attending more often or even bringing new people into the sport, aside from, indeed, targeting that younger demographic that we're always talking about. It doesn't matter which decade you're in, we're always looking at rejuvenating the sport's fan base and especially as he and I are both part of the millennial generation which is certainly at this point getting a bit you know further removed they're targeting uh, Generation Z favoring them over us but I, I felt like we were in a good position to still address the issue. 
All right, I think it's time that we play this interview. I'm going to keep you around here, Naomi, to come back at the end so we can button this up together. But uh, without further ado, uh, here's Naomi's interview with Kevin Blake. A horse racing analyst on Sky Sports and ITV, an award-winning freelance journalist, a breeder. You've written a book and your advisor to be one of the most talented trainers in Joseph O'Brien. Anything you haven't done, Kevin Blake? Loads is the answer to that question, Naomi, but uh, delighted to be on and thanks for having me. So happy to have you with us here today. Please give us an overview of where you started in racing and what have you done thus far? Oh God, right, where did I start? Um, No racing background at all, really. Um, A farming background and my what started all was my father bought a very, very cheap broodmare off a man in a pub when I was about 12 and uh, that sparked a bit of an interest and an interest grew into a passion and yeah I've been in it ever since um, I've went down many different avenues but uh, I suppose the constant through it all has been writing and journalism and um, I'm still very much focused on that. You recently wrote an article relating to the tendency of horse racing to target a younger generation such as Generation Z in a bid to attract new fans and securities future of us but what made you question this commonly held belief among marketers and policy makers uh, it's a thought i've had for a long time now you know as someone that that, that came to the sport you know in my teens uh it, it, it's just when you step back and you look and and you you wonder right how can we get these younger people because this has been a a theory for decades upon decades in horse racing um, I recall last year somebody posted uh, an old newspaper clipping on Twitter from, I'm, I'm almost certain it was the 1960s or 70s, and the question being asked was, how can we get more young people into racing? Uh, our current supporters are getting older. How can we replace them? So this has been an ongoing thing for ages. But, you know, my concern with targeting, you know, teenagers, uh, people in their early 20s, uh, I just don't know if they're the most easily re- recruitable people to a sport like horse racing uh, because, you know, everyone was that age at some stage that's listening to this, I'm sure. And you, you know that when you're in your late teens and your 20s, there's an awful lot going on in life. Um, you know, everyone's different. We, do, we don't like generalize too much, but, you know, a lot of people are stuck in their education. Uh, their social life is going 100 miles an hour. And generally, um, people in that demographic don't have loads of disposable income. And that uh, racing is a game that it, it, it can be quite expensive to follow. And it, it is perhaps best suited to those with a bit, little bit of disposable income. So, you know, my thought has been rather than focusing so much uh, effort and investment in terms of marketing spend on that demographic, might we have a bit more success if we aim a little bit older, you know, late 20s, 30s, even 40s, you know, when people are a little bit further down uh, the the train tracks of life they're it's settled into a bit more of a rhythm uh they'll be in they might be in a steady job they might be in a, a, a long-term relationship uh, they might have children that that maybe are getting a little bit older and and they're just a little bit more established in life and they might be in a better position to commit uh the time uh, and the money necessary to take a, a serious interest in horse racing I'd have to support you here in the notion about disposable income because I was actually looking up a couple of stats. And for instance, in uh, America, Generation X is going to have the most disposable income out of any generation. So 
that does seem to be a good generation to target. Now, what kind of ideas would you put forward to target this demographic? Um, well, if there's any number of ways you can go about it. You know, I think a big thing for horse racing marketeers, certainly in Ireland and England, is they seem to think that you need a sideshow, you need a gimmick to bring in people that are uh, com- that are completely fresh to the idea of horse racing. You know, post race concerts and that uh, you know for best dressed lady competitions and, and things like that. And I don't necessarily, you know, while all these things have their place to one extent or another. You know, I don't think we necessarily do enough to sell the sport on its own merits and, and sell it for what it is. You know, what attracted to me to horse racing was, was the puzzle and uh, and the excitement of it. You know, the sport itself, no, nothing to do with any of the sideshows, um, purely as someone with a mind that is a little bit inclined towards uh, numbers and analysis and puzzles. You know, there there couldn't be, in my mind, a more exciting puzzle to try and solve than, than 20 thoroughbred horses galloping down the track flat out. And you're trying to figure out, based on all the pieces of the puzzle and all the variables that go into producing the results of a horse race, you're trying to figure out which one's going to get to the line first. Um, to me, that's absolutely fascinating, exciting, and, uh, and any number of things. And, and I, I think people that are involved in racing day-to-day that are involved in it for perhaps have been involved in it all their lives. Sometimes they can take for granted just how exciting a sport horse racing is and how stimulating it can be mentally to people that that, that come across it for the first time. So um, rather than trying to trick people into um, taking an interest in horse racing by getting them in uh, based on a, a gimmick or a sideshow, you know, I, I think we should be a little bit more confident about the, the quality of the product we have and uh, and perhaps push that out there a little bit and push out the the basically the the merits of approaching the sport in terms of the puzzle and um, that would be the way I'd look at it you know I know in in America um, I, the, the landscape is changing greatly but you know the success of you know fantasy sports and things like that and even in this neck of the woods uh, there's clearly a, a vast demographic of people out there that like that sort of thing. And if you're into that sort of thing, um, racing, I'd imagine, would be a pretty good fit. And it's just our job, I feel, to do a better job of, of educating those that, that stick their nose into the game for a look. Because in my opinion, you know, the basics are reasonably well covered online and what have you. But for those that want to go on to the next level, I, I don't necessarily think there's a great amount of mid-level information there for those that have taken an interest think it might be for them and want to learn more you know i think we can definitely do a better job uh, of putting that educational material out there um, online in particular making it free to access and, uh, and and making people as aware as possible that it's there you and me both share that passion for horse racing and the tennessee want to solve those puzzles that i find very enticing as well but just want to give a little bit of an example of how actually maybe the social aspect can still entice people to also look at the sport itself. I went to a baseball game for the first time in my life when I was in the USA, and I didn't know anything about it. But knowing that it's a fun thing to do with friends and going there with such a big crowd made me think, okay, I should maybe give this a go. And whilst I was there, I was learning about the sport. And when I was reading up about uh, 
industry statistics. I came across the GBR growth industry update report from 2015, and that actually said that 6% of people attending horse racing said socializing was the most important reason for their day out, followed by racing and followed by betting. So perhaps we should be promoting both aspects, don't you think? Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a place for pretty much everything. You know, I've, I'd never be upset at anyone for for having a go uh, at anything, really. And, you know, in terms of that, you know, we, we I think horse racing has the scope to lean into that in terms of creating, um, you know, networking events at the races to, to create, you know, well-organized events that give people a reason. You know, that demographic that I was talking about earlier, slightly older, you know, generally these people are a little bit more organized in how they go about things and it's important that they have good notice uh, in advance of things. And if, if well-organized fun events can be organized that these people can put can put it into their diaries to, to go and attend, I think that would certainly be a help. And, you know, maybe we, we could, we, I say we as in racing, could do a little more to incentivize existing committed racing fans to bring friends and family to the races that aren't necessarily uh, as big as supporters of the sport in a bid to, to get them to take more of an interest. And, you know, one of the things that touched on in the article you mentioned is, is a loyalty scheme, which, you know, I think is an absolute no-brainer. And I've been banging my head against the wall for well over a decade uh, in Ireland trying to get um, our, our, our regulatory body to bring this in, but they, they haven't yet. You know, because I, you know, I would strongly feel that the most important customer that racing has is the existing passionate follower of the sport. Because we can talk all day about how to better attract new people to the sport, but in terms of the investment we'd make to try and attract new people, uh, the the return we get in terms of committed, passionate followers of the sport will, will, in a percentage term, be very small. So once we get them and once we have them. You know, I think we can do a much better job of making them feel appreciated and, and growing their passion even more. And it's a very basic thing in my mind to reward someone for being a regular attendee at the races. You know, certainly in Ireland and in England, you know, there's there's no such mechanism. You know, it seems mad to me that the guy that goes racing 20 times a year will have to pay full price in every time, whereas the guy that turns up once a year because there's a concert on and pays the same price. It's just not logical to me. And, you know, in terms of what we just spoke about there, incentivizing existing fans to bring new blood in, you know, perhaps an offshoot of that loyalty scheme could be, uh, you know, if a loyalty card holder turns up at the races with five people, five new people, um, that could be, somehow, you know, registered on a central database. And there could be rewards for that card holder for, for bringing those people to the races. You know, there, there's plenty of scope, I think, to 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 bring things like this together. Um, you know, relatively basic things. You know, because well, well, when you have it's much as, as the saying goes. You know, having one in your hand is much more valuable than a, than two birds in the bush. So, um, you know, when we have such a passionate uh, fan base that that we do in horse existing fan base that we do in horse racing. You know, my, my thought would be, right, maybe we can do more to make the best of those, to, to expand their interests and to use them as, as ambassadors for our sport to attract new fans. Well, there are current schemes that are readily used in other disciplines, so I don't see why we couldn't even try to apply them. And I'm very glad that you addressed the 
current fan base because I was personally wondering if there perhaps is another problem underlying this dilemma, namely revolving around the lack of customer knowledge and data to allow for transparency and knowledge of the racing audience. Do you think that might play a role as well? Yeah, possibly so. Possibly so. You know, I think, you know, all of these things can be achieved if there's a will to achieve them. Um, And I just think that, you know, the racing marketeers in so many countries are are just obsessed with fishing uh, for, for new customers that we just don't necessarily make the best of what we already have and those that are already in the tent. Uh, you know, I think there's definite scope for us to improve in that regard. You briefly touched upon concerts and other events to attract a different crowd to the race course. In Australia, the race course seems to have successfully capitalised on the social aspect of racing, which does include fashion on the field competitions, but also affordable memberships for younger participants, booming new high-profile races such as the Everett. But that seems to sort of backfire in Europe in terms of those concerts. Do you believe that Europe should try to follow the same course or reroute towards those other measures of celebrating the established fan base? You know, it's a tricky thing. And, you know, I suppose one of the key differences with, you know, the likes of Ireland and Britain compared to, say, Hong Kong and Japan, for argument's sake, is that in Hong Kong and Japan, the, the, the race courses are owned by the racing authorities and everyone is pushing in the same direction. Whereas in, in, in the majority of cases in Ireland and, and in most cases in Britain, the race courses are independent bodies and, and their primary concern is their profit and loss sheet. Um, so they will do things that, that will make them money but aren't necessarily in the, the greater, wider interest of racing. And, you know, the, the UK, the concerts, the concept of the, the race course concerts has been much more successful than in Ireland. Um, but really, for them, it's about the race courses making money. Um, it's not, I don't think there's a big consideration uh, going into how will we convert these concert goers into racing fans. And that would be a, a wonderful consequence. But... Primarily, I think, with, with the concerts on British tracks, it's about uh, getting money in the pot and making a profit. Would you say that it's hence a very cultural thing, very sort of locally, that you have to look at a solution? For example, it's different in England compared to Ireland, compared to Australia, compared to the US, compared to, like you say, Hong Kong and Japan? Yeah, I think so. You know, and you've got different funding mechanisms. And, you know, you gave the example of Australia, which, you know, compared to Britain in particular, you know, financially, it's just got such a, a better model um, in, in almost every regard that it makes it, it makes the whole thing a little bit smoother. Whereas in Britain, um, you know, you're, you're always fighting for every pound um, and it can be a little bit, little bit more. And you've got race courses pulling in different directions to the, 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 the racing authorities. And it always just seems to be a bun fight, you know, in, in British and Irish racing. Every, Every interest group thinks they're the most important one and that they will, they will not be convinced otherwise, whereas the reality of it is every interest group needs each other for, for the game to work. Um, and, you know, that's for me, that's the real beauty of the, the setup in, in the likes of Japan and Hong Kong, where you've got the, the JRA and Hong Kong Jockey Club. Uh, they're all pushing in one direction and they control everything. And I know there are some drawbacks to that, but in terms of uh, achieving uh, what much of what we're discussing here, it makes the whole thing a lot easier. 
Um, whereas in this neck of the woods, we have people pulling in every direction, and it's just it can be very, very frustrating, and it's 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 difficult to see that changing because you know the, the games are set up as they are in in the UK and Ireland, um, and it's going to it would take very powerful leadership to try and unite everyone behind a common cause, and and to put aside the the, the petty squabbles and self interest. Uh, you know, I think that's the biggest challenge we face, and being realistic, it's a difficult one to see getting solved uh, any time in the near future, unfortunately. So, just to sum up everything that we've just discussed, if there's one call to action that you want to give our listeners as a takeaway, or the global racing entities, what would it be? Um, look after your existing customers better. You know, I think that the loyalty schemes, things along those lines um, are the way forward. You know, you can spend fortunes on marketing uh, and different different schemes and different ventures. But, you know, the best ambassadors that horse racing have are those that are already passionate about the sport. And if we can just motivate and incentivize those existing and passionate supporters, to uh, to go out and be our recruiters to go out and bring their friends bring their non-racing friends their non-racing family and get them to the track if we can do that you know i think we'd see uh much better results uh sometimes it, it seems a lot of the marketing spend in racing is like casting casting one's bait onto a, a vast ocean and there's not a whole lot of fish in there uh, whereas when if, if we use our existing passionate fans as ambassadors and recruiters, I think the chances of success uh, are, are much greater. Let's say that's a great New Year's resolution for 2020. Let's all bring at least five friends to the race. Yeah, I'd be, uh, you know, that'd be absolutely fantastic. Um, and, you know, and look, it's the reality. Sometimes there needs to be an incentive for, for doing things like that. And I think if, if the racing authorities um, considered that um, that 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 sort of result is being what they want to achieve, and came up with a way that might uh, better incentivize people to do that. You know, I think they, I think they see results quite quickly. Kevin, thank you so much for your insight, and it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, thanks very much, Naomi. Pleasure. Good stuff, Naomi. Very enjoyable to hear that. Just wanted to come back here for a minute to talk a little more specifically about how some of the ideas you discussed with Kevin could be applied to the USA. To me, the USA is even a better market to lean into rewarding existing fans simply because of the way we make money in our industry, which is through betting. So doing things to encourage betters to bet more, to bring more people out, to introduce them to the betting side of the game. It's actually a lot easier, I think, in the U.S. to reap the benefits of taking care of your existing customers than it is for for racing around the world. That's actually quite an interesting point of view, and I feel like you might be a better expert in terms of betting incentives than I am, but that's definitely something that you can monetize on. Now, the first thing that came into my mind when I was speaking with Kevin is that when I was in Australia, they had these young schemes, the membership schemes for young, younger generations, and that you really get the chance to be a member of that race course, so feel like you're a part of it for a really cheap price. So young people being able to enjoy the races, go to the parties, they had lots of parties there as well. And that really worked. Well, that was in Sydney. There's a lot of 
younger people out there anyway and everyone loves to have a good time and it works really well so i thought hold on there's a lot of local racetracks in the usa a lot of great racetracks with incredible atmospheres such as santa anita such as saratoga such as keeneland why can't we do that there I think it's a good idea and you could see a world in which you market to existing your existing best customers hey bring 20 friends and we'll provide a picnic or whatever it is i think about those uh, barbecue pits at belmont park they're not really barbecue pits but they've got the grill and you're right there on the apron and on a lovely spring day what a great way to market the sport with the action right in front of you. Maybe instead of that's something that young people have to come up with the idea to do and, and spend the money, that's something that should be offered up to some of the best customers in the right demographic. And you can create that kind of fun vibe and just introduce more people to all the good things about going racing. Absolutely. And the idea that, let's say, one of your friends has got this offer means that it's special, that it's sought after, that not everyone can get it. So it really entices people to go, oh, well, well, my friend got this discount. We can get a great picnic. We can all go. Let's make it a day out. That is so much more reason to go to the trap than just randomly go, okay, maybe I should have a look at this. And it, what Kevin mentions as well, which I would reiterate, is that a lot of people get into the sport because of their friends, because it's a social environment and because people enjoy being together with a great atmosphere, with, you know, great racing, great sports. So just tying that in with incentives would really work, I think. Yeah, another track I could see having great success with something like this would be Monmouth Park and their fun summer atmosphere that they have. Heard a rumor they might be doing something pretty cool on Friday nights for this upcoming year. I could see that being a place where you could really try to market to some new people through some creative ways. We'll talk to our, our friends down there. Some good news, Naomi, from you I heard today. You're actually going to be heading back stateside. That means a chance to interact with more folks down in Florida over the coming weeks. you have anything particular in mind you're looking to bring to the show, or are you going to just get over there and see what happens? Well, it's really great to be going back in the first days, and, of course, the Florida weather is much better than <laughs> in the Netherlands at the moment. So, you know, it was a very easy decision, but it's great to be going back. But you know what? I think there's a lot of – there's a lot of trainers and top jockeys out there at the moment. So it'd be great to maybe do a couple of walk and talk and I've got some good ideas. So let's keep, we'll keep ourselves posted on this one, but um, it'll be good. Excellent. We look forward to hearing from you and wish you safe travels. Thank you. That's going to do it for this extended edition of the In the Ring Pedigree podcast. We'd like to thank everyone who participated today. We'll start off with JK and Sean Tugel. Safi Joseph, Mike Campbell, Naomi Tucker, and Kevin Blake. Most of all, thanks to all of you for listening and making these shows so much fun to do. We look forward to doing a lot more of them as 2020 continues to roll along. That's going to do it. This show is a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way. <laughs>